Well, if you got your handout, you have a quote at the top that is, I believe is going to be even more meaningful as we go along. It is by Sandra Richter, and it's from her book, The Epic of Eden. She said, the Bible is the saga. Now, let's pause there just a moment. What's a saga? The definition is a long story of heroic achievement. So we're talking about the Bible here is a saga of Yahweh, God, and Adam, the prodigal son and his ever gracious heavenly father, humanity in their rebellion and God in his grace. This narrative begins with Eden and does not conclude until the new Jerusalem is firmly in place. It is all one story. And if you're a believer, it is all your story. What great news. Now, as we begin in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and I know you did an entire week of study on Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and you were probably, like Paige said this morning, wondering, how are we going to get an entire week's worth of study? And you realize we just scratched the surface (laughs) of what we could have gone into as we studied Genesis 1 and 2. But what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So we see from the very beginning that we are introduced to God. In the beginning, God. The one who existed before the beginning, the one who exists outside of time. But as we see in Genesis 1, in the beginning tells us there is an end. So God is beginning the story of revealing himself to mankind and of his purposes in creating us. In fact, um, Francis Schaeffer said in his book, Genesis in Space and Time, the beginning is the beginning of man and time and space, not the beginning of God. That is, before in the beginning, the personal was already there. Love and thought and communication existed prior to the creation of the heavens and the earth. We know that there was love and communication within the Godhead, within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as you were doing your study this week, you read that it's very possible that Moses actually saw the beginning, much like John saw the end and recorded it for us in the book of Revelation. And as we were meeting together and looking at the study and kind of dividing it up and praying over it, um, it just hit me. When Moses was on the mountain, the Lord said to him about the tabernacle, create the articles of the tabernacle and erect it exactly as I have shown you on the mountain. Now we know that when Moses was up on the top of that mountain, that mountain was covered in fire and smoke, that he met with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And God revealed things to him that so changed him that when he came down from that mountain, he was literally growing, glowing. He had been transfigured. I think probably much like Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, gleaming, although he was even brighter and whiter than anything the earth could ever manufacture. But Moses was changed. And we know that God revealed to him, many times God will remove the veil, or as John said, open a door and allow someone to see into the spirit realm. And I believe that's exactly what happened to Moses on the mountain with God. God allowed him to see and experience the articles of the tabernacle that actually exist in the throne room. And as I was just really reviewing and thinking about that, all of a sudden it hit me. God, if you showed him the throne room, Is it possible that you allowed him to see the beginning? 
as you reveal to him for him to write down. Because we know Moses, the Bible credits Moses with being the author of the first five books of the Bible. What the Bible and Jesus call the law. The books of Moses, Jesus called them. So how amazing is that? And then we get to, in the beginning, God created. And the word for create there in Hebrew is B-A-R-A. And it literally means to create ex nihilio, out of nothing. So it is a word only used with God because God is the only one who can create without pre-existing materials. When man makes something, we make it out of pre-existing materials, not God. Now, if you struggle believing that God created and God spoke, and as we get into even looking at the days of creation, was it, you know, did, was it seven literal days? Did he really create in six days? Was it morning and evening? Was it a 24-hour day? Does it really matter? And would that be impossible for someone, someone who can speak and everything that we know comes into existence? No, that would not be an impossibility for him. And it's very difficult for us who are created and who are bound by time and physical space to grasp one who is not and who can speak and all that we know comes into being. In fact, Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So the Bible affirms the fact that God creates differently than man creates or makes. Now in Genesis chapter, or verse 2 of chapter 1, we see the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Father in verse 1. Elohim is the word that's used there, and it's actually a plural now, theologians disagree over whether or not that's actually an introduction of the Trinity, but it has to be a foreshadowing, if nothing else, because it is a plural for the Godhead, and we understand the Trinity more fully when we get into the New Testament. Obviously, for us, looking back, it's very clear to us that we're seeing right here in Genesis chapter 1, 1, 2, and 3, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit in verse number 2, and it says, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. He hovered over them, is what it means. And it's much like a mother bird hovers over her nest. So it's intimate. It's personal. It's relational. The Spirit was hovering over the deep before God spoke and said, let there be. That word for hover is also used in Deuteronomy 32.11 to describe the eagle's movements and stirring its young into flight. This aspect of intimate contact Contact must be kept in mind throughout as we're doing our study. Deuteronomy 32.11 says, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Now what a mother eagle does is she stirs the nest to get her youngsters, if you will, to get out of the nest so that they can learn to fly when it's time for them to leave the nest. And what he's saying here, God does, is he did that over Israel. He hovered over the nest and he pushed them out when it was time for them to be out of the nest. But the mother eagle doesn't leave her babies if they're unable to fly or they're struggling, you know what she does? She swoops under them and she literally picks them up on her wings and carries them on her pinions. That's the visual picture that Moses is giving us of God the Father and how God was that mother hovering over Israel and protecting them and teaching them to fly. Well, in verse 3, which we don't actually get into until next week because it begins the actual creation account, but we're going to stop with, and then God said, because that's where we see Jesus. That's where we see the Son. 
In fact, John 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What did God say? Let there be light, right? We know Jesus Christ is that light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So we see from the very beginning when God is introducing himself, because that's what the Bible is. The Bible is a book about God. It is God progressively revealing himself to us, his creatures, those who have been created in his image to be like God. He created us different from the rest of creation. He set us apart and he created us for relationship. So we have seen in these first three verses the Trinity, right? God the Father, then we see the Spirit, then we see the Son in verse 3. Now in your homework, you had the picture, the illustration of three intersecting circles that are often used to represent the Trinity, they are one, but they are distinct. They are the same and equal, and yet we experience them as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Once again, a concept too grand for some, our minds to really grasp. I've heard people try to describe the Trinity like water. You've got water, steam, and ice, but even in that, it's not the same. I realize they're made out of the same things, but this is three in one. The Godhead, three in one. Trinity, but it's very important because it represents Great truths about how God has created us in his image. So God is a trichotomy, three and one. God's desire from the very beginning has been for relationship, to dwell with us. And we see it first in the garden. Okay, now I, I, I really need your utmost attention as we track through the Bible. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation, tracing this theme of a trichotomy and of God's desire to dwell with his people. All right, now this is important, but I think you're going to love it <laughs> as we work through it. So think about the garden. The garden was actually the first temple because God was there. God's presence, he walked among the garden. He talked with Adam and Eve. They experienced God's unveiled presence because there was no sin. There was no sin to separate them from God or from each other until Genesis chapter three. So we see that God had relationship with Adam and Eve. They experienced intimacy with him. There was no separation. There was, I mean, they were not intimidated. They experienced God in all of his unveiled glory until Genesis chapter three. And then God removes them from the garden to protect them because what does he say? Lest they reach out and take from the tree of life and eat from it and live forever in this sinful state. So God is protecting us by moving Adam and Eve out of the garden, sealing the way back in, but he gives a promise. He says that he's going to send one through the seed of woman who will crush the head of Satan. That's the curse put on Satan. And so from that time on, don't you know, every woman was wondering every time she gave birth to a son, will this be the one? Will this be the promised one? I believe Eve thought that when she gave birth the first time, second time, the third time, they're thinking, will this be the promised one? 
So the garden was the first temple. But God wasn't able to dwell with his people unveiled anymore because of our sin. His holiness would destroy us. And we know that because when God gave Moses the picture, the instructions for the tabernacle, and he told him, do it exactly the way I have shown you on the mountain. It was very important because the Bible tells us those articles are a shadow or a picture of what actually exists in the throne room of God. So that's why God was so particular about it. And also he gave them and established from the beginning when he killed an animal and clothed them with skins, that it takes the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty to cover our sin. In the tabernacle, with the sacrifices that were offered on the altar, their sins were covered. And the high priest would go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would take the blood of the sacrificial lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the very throne of God, and their sins would be covered for another year. But only the high priest could go in behind the veil. Only the high priest who had prepared himself exactly the way God had told him to, who had fasted, who had on the white linen garments, he's the only one who could approach the presence of God that dwelt in the holy of holies. What the Bible calls the Shekinah glory of God. God dwelt in the holy of holies. And the tabernacle is a trichotomy. It has three parts. It's the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. So it is a trichotomy, and the presence of God dwelt in the innermost part in the holy of holies. God was able once again to dwell among his people without his holiness consuming them because he dwelt within the holy of holies of the tabernacle. And man was given very specific instructions for how he was able to approach God and have his sins covered every year over and over and over. So we have the tabernacle, then we have the more permanent structure of the temple erected in the same way. You know, John 1, 14 says, when Jesus came, that the word actually became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came and tabernacled, dwelt, the very presence of God. He came, the promised one, through a virgin and lived a sinless, perfect life so that he could take my place and your place on the cross because the Bible's very clear, the wages of sin is death. The sacrificial system revealed that to us. We understand that it takes death to cover sin. So Jesus came, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. Now let that sink in. God created us knowing we would choose to rebel. But he gave us that choice because coerced love is not love. He created us for relationship. The Trinity, the Godhead, decided it was worth it to create man who would rebel and Christ would come to purchase us back to right relationship with the Father, that it was worth him becoming one of us and dying in our place so that our sin debt could be paid. And not only was our sin debt paid, 
Not only were our sins covered, they're erased. They're removed. And once for all, not every year like the high priest had to do on the Day of Atonement, but once for all, when Jesus gave himself for us on Calvary, the sin debt was paid. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, paid in full, what happened to that veil? It was torn from top to bottom, forever opening the way for us to have access to the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the miraculous work of Calvary that we sang about this morning. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. It's mine. And if you're in Christ, your name is written down too. And it's written down because Jesus Christ paid your sin debt. And he paid my sin debt by giving himself on that cross, by being buried, by conquering death, hell, and the grave, and coming out with the keys when God raised him back to life on that third day. And he came out of that grave a conqueror so that we too could be overcomers. That's why we're able to overcome, because we live in resurrection power. It's not in our own power. We live now according to the power of God which grants us access, Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We are able to approach. And when, with confidence, it literally means with boldness, with freedom of speech. You don't have to prepare yourself to go into his presence. You run into his presence and you cry out for help. When you're at your weakest, when you're at your worst, he welcomes you. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got our act cleaned up. Not when we were doing our best. When we were at our worst, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we see God as three in one. We see the tabernacle where God dwelt, a trichotomy. We see man created in his image, also a trichotomy. We are spirit, soul, and body. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 states, Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are spirit, soul, and body, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. So what happens, as Jesus described to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, is when we are regenerated, when our, our spirit man who's been dead, we are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians tells us, when our spirit man is regenerated, when it's brought back to life, it's literally we're born of the Spirit. The Spirit comes back to life, and then God's Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And Ephesians tells us that we are sealed in Him until the day of redemption. We have the Spirit within us that Romans tells us now bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. No longer slaves, no longer servants, but heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's what Christ has purchased for us. And that's part of what it means to be created in his image. He fills us and he's fulfilling his promise by doing that, of not just dwelling with us, but in us. And the New Testament tells us that we are now, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Because of Calvary, because of the blood applied to us at the point of salvation, 
He can now indwell our physical bodies without destroying us, without his holiness consuming us. Because when his blood is applied, remember what we said? It doesn't just cover your sins, it removes your sins. Can we pause there just a moment and ask ourselves how we would live if we truly believed that? If we truly believed we were the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Would we make different decisions if we believed we were righteous in him? Completely forgiven? Absolutely loved? Delighted over? I went by to see my Memphis grands yesterday because we were out of town last week. We were in Vermont, and it was beautiful. I had never been to Vermont before. Steve and I were invited up to speak at a church planters conference, an encouragers retreat for pastors and wives in New England. And it was an absolute delight to be with over 200 pastors and wives and to be able to encourage them and teach them and just love on them. It was a, it was a wonderful experience. But that's a beautiful state. I mean, I had no idea. In the Green Mountains, we were in Manchester, Vermont, and the villages are quaint, beautiful New England homes. It was just quite an experience. Experience, but I missed my grands, you know, the local ones, you get to see a little more often. And so I had called yesterday and offered to bring by lunch just so I could come, you know, come see them and did that. And I got sitting there with Ainsley. I was playing with Ainsley and Grayson. We were having a tea party and we were playing and I was sitting in that little bitty chair, that little bitty table. Um, and I got Ainsley by the face and I put my hands on both sides of her face. And I said, look at me in the eyes. Look at me in the eyes. I love you. I love you. If I could grasp you by the face this morning, I would love to do that and tell you, God loves you. <laughs> he delights in you. He was more than willing for the son to come to pay your sin debt because he loves you. Oh, if we lived loved, how different would we live? How different would our perspective be on the valleys that we sometimes walk through and the difficulties that we experience in this life because of sin, because we live in a creation that has been cursed. We live in a, in a creation that is suffering because of sin, and it will all be restored one day. But until then, we can live above it by walking in the Spirit and believing what God has revealed to us in His Word. It changes everything. It completely changes our perspective. Jesus prayed in John 17. In fact, I want you to turn there because it is so powerful. In John 17, we call this the high priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying for his followers. And he's not just praying for his disciples there. He's also praying for all those that would believe. That means us. He was praying for us. And we know now he ever lives to make intercession. He's praying for us right now. But look at John 17. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you realize that this God that we've been talking about, this Holy One allows us to come to know Him intimately through the Son, through Jesus Christ. And that is eternal life. Knowing Him is what imparts life to us. Now, I want you to drop down to verse 13. 
But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now listen to this. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfected, how? In unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Can we pause here just a minute? Do you realize what he's praying? That we can be one with him, just as he is one with the Father. Now think back to that picture of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, interconnected one and yet three. But because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, we are now one in essence. We have been given the very nature of God through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And so we have been invited into that Trinitarian relationship. That's the kind of intimacy we can experience because we are in Christ. We are now a part of, through the Holy Spirit, being one with God the Father and God the Son when we die to our flesh and come alive in Christ. That's what Jesus was saying. If you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. That means death to ourself, death to the flesh. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. When we do that, we're walking in the spirit and we are in unity, oneness with God. But he also prayed that we would be unified with one another. I don't know in my lifetime if I have ever seen the church more ununified than it is right now. And it is because we are focusing on issues that are not gospel issues. If it is not about the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, seeing people saved through the gospel, and blessing and loving our fellow man, and especially brothers and sisters in Christ, because what did Jesus say? They're going to know you're my disciples, my followers, by your love for one another, Are we showing the world that? That's what Jesus said in John 17. He wants the world to see so that I in them and you in me in verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. How is the world going to know if we're listening to the voice of the enemy instead of the voice of the spirit? If we're allowing our flesh to be caught up in all these tribal wars that are going on on social media and out in the culture, that's just a tool of the enemy. What does the enemy do? He's the one who divides. Jesus said a house divided against itself can't stand. The enemy is the one who comes in to steal, kill, and destroy. 
He is the one who lies. He is the one who incites our flesh. He is the one who comes in to divide. So if we're going to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy, we're going to choose love. We're going to choose unity. We're going to choose to believe the best about brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to go to them in person if there's a real disagreement or an issue an issue that maybe they're not being true to the word of God, then what does scripture tell us? We go to them in person. We don't blast them on social media. That is not what God has called us to. Shame on us. Shame on us for falling into the obvious traps of the evil one. And instead, may we choose today to enter in through the beautiful, the precious, priceless, blood of Jesus into that oneness of relationship with the Trinity. May we commune with him today through the Spirit and the Son. May we have the presence, the manifest presence of the Father in our midst. He will not manifest his presence to people who are not united around the gospel. May we choose to unite. May we choose to love because that is the way of Jesus. It's 1 Corinthians 13, love. And then, oh my goodness, let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. Because we know the end of the story. <laughs> How cool is that? We get to look at the beginning and study it, knowing what happened in between and knowing what we have to look forward to. So when you get to Revelation chapter 21, let's look at verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, does that sound familiar? Is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among him. Once again, the unveiled presence of God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now drop down to verse 22. I saw no temple in it. He's talking about the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's no need for a temple. It'll once again be like the garden. In Genesis chapter 2. And you understand that Genesis 1 and 2 are creation. Genesis 3 is the curse. At the end of the book, Revelation 20 
is death to the curse. <laughs> the enemy, Satan, it's all, he's all thrown into the lake of fire and all those whose name, names are not found in the book of life. And Revelation 21 and 22 are the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And it will be us living in unveiled presence, in the unveiled presence of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. The way God originally intended for us to experience him in relationship. That's what he has prepared for those who love him. And I want to ask you this morning, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? We can't read about all that God has done for us and the majesty of what awaits us, all that he has prepared for those who love him, without pausing and making sure that we know our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. All you have to do to have your name written down is receive the free gift of salvation. It's free because Jesus paid the cost. He paid your sin debt. And all we have to do is repent and believe. And to repent means I turn from my old way of living. I turn from my sin and I turn toward God. And I cry out to him and tell him, I believe. Lord, save me. And the Bible's clear that if we will call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. That's all you have to do this morning is call on his name. And I pray that you will do that before you leave this place, if you're not certain that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life.